it's important that we understand when we look at historical archives and bank ledgers that enslavers, when they needed more dollars, enslaved people were collateral. Mm-hmm. If there were defaults on these loans, then they were the properties of the lender. It's also important that we understand that enslaved people were also rented by cities and states, sometimes from enslavers to create cities and states. Some of the most amazing architecture in this country was off of the backs of Black buddies. Welcome to Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground, where we talk about supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity with everyone from academics, historians, and business leaders. With your hosts, Chloe Guidry-Reed and Adam Moore, you'll hear inspiring stories and practical tips for overcoming challenges and gaining insight into supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground. I'm Matt Colicello, in for Adam Moore, here with my co-host, Chloe Guidry-Reed. We're joined today by Dr. Janelle Williams, CEO and co-founder of Atlanta Wealth Building Initiative. AWBI is a community of investors, advocates, practitioners, and scholars that exists to restructure access to capital to create opportunities for Black people in Atlanta and across the South to build collective wealth. Dr. Williams leads AWBI in their mission to promote understanding of community wealth building strategies to cultivate the engagement, capacity, and leadership necessary to shape a new economic narrative in Atlanta and beyond. Dr. Williams, welcome to the show. We're so glad to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yes, Janelle. Wow, that sounds like some amazing work you guys are doing in Atlanta. Yes, absolutely amazing and also quite necessary as well, Chloe, when we look at the data and just the day-to-day realities that so many people and places are experiencing right now. And so we absolutely feel the urgency of this work, particularly in these times. And we're just really excited to lock arms with organizations like Higher Ground that are really committed to making sure that we collectively invest in talent, in opportunity to really bolster our overall economy. I love that. So I want to start from the genesis. Can you tell us a little bit about your path to working in economic justice and your and, and what led you into this current role as CEO? Yeah, you know, I have to say the work I do, I give my parents full credit to it. Mm. That's not mm. a unique response, I think, for many people who are in this sector. There's usually a personal experience that leads us to do this type of work. But my parents were really ahead of their times, to be quite honest, and they were young parents. And I give them so much credit when I think about the latitude I had to be exposed to real nuance, heavy, complicated issues. Um, And so as a tween, my parents allowed me to be out doing community organizing work around HIV 
in Trinidad and Tobago, where I'm originally from. And this is early 90s. I was also working to speak to people around myths about HIV and, and quite frankly, how we also make sure that we don't weaponize people who battle with this every day. And quite frankly, really understanding that love is the absolute antidote. Love is still the antidote of so much of the work we're doing. Um, so I remember for us, we celebrate Christmas and sometimes for Christmas, it wasn't like, okay, let's see what gifts we get. You know, my dad was like, we're going to make a one pot and we're going to go out and we're going to feed the homeless. And that's what the work we did. And it wasn't because we came from so much. We actually didn't always have. And yet my parents really demonstrated wealth in their giving and in their commitment to service. And so this was a path that I was deeply socialized and oriented in. You know, when I think about being like eight years old, nine years old, out 10 o'clock at night, and then as a teenager, Friday nights, Wednesday nights, where I'm coming from working. And it was, and I did a lot of faith-based organizing. And so that was the archetype of my work, the the, the um, architect of a lot of my work um, in Trinidad. And so Coming here to the U.S., it really exposed to me and I attended an HBCU, which was so incredibly grounding around our shared experience and the intentional systematic oppression and economic exclusion for Black people across the diaspora. And I felt not just deeply compelled, but like the data was so unapologetic that the only work to do was to really think about how do you invest in building Black community wealth? And so I stumbled into philanthropy because this was not even a sector that I was used to. You know, I was born in the Caribbean where unfortunately, and this is because of some of these things of neo-imperialism, there isn't intentional investment in safety nets. And so I did not know what philanthropy was as a sector at at, at all and stumbled into this. And it was such a privilege because you don't see a lot of people that look like me and particularly sound like me in this sector. And it really was a gift. And I locked arms with the co-founder, with our co-founder for Atlanta Wellbuilding Initiative, Tani Trela. And AWBI was always rooted in love data with community. And this was an opportunity to really invest in and, and really commit to a body of work. Um, that transcends Black exceptionalism, that is clearly unapologetic. This was an opportunity to really seed a legacy to leave this world a bit better than we found it. And so I'm so proud to be part of not just the organization, but this movement, which to me is really a tapestry of partners in solidarity saying this is a moral and economic imperative. We need to invest in economic justice. And if we, if our country reconciles with its history, that starts with making sure we look at building wealth for Black people and other communities of color as well. I love it. Well, Janelle, I feel like there's so much in your story that resonates with, with Chloe and I and with our listeners. And One of the things that I was thinking of as as you were speaking is that quote by Cornel West, that justice is what love looks like in public and how you can't disconnect a culture of love from systems that are equitable and inclusive. That's really all kind of two sides of the same coin. That's right. That's right. 
I love that, uh, Matt. And this is why I think it's so important that we remember that the opposite of hate isn't love. It's it's indifference. Mm-hmm. It's apathy. And we have to name the perils of apathy because apathy actually does not support justice. It and doesn't. so it's, it's deeply, deeply aligned. And so thank you for raising that and naming that. Synthesizing what I said in three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, one of the things that resonated with me and as a parent is the impact that your parents had. And you made a comment at the at the beginning when you were talking about them that that's probably not unique. But in fact, it is when we talk about people's journeys. A lot of times, I mean, you're maybe one of two people and we're well into 200 something episodes that attribute their upbringing and their parents into why they do the work that they, that they do today. So I think that that's another thing that we as leaders around economic justice is making sure that we're raising up a new generation of people who can come behind us and understand exactly what they're walking into and that we're making clear paths for them. I think that that is that experiential learning by people that actually love you and are invested in you is something that I think we get so busy with on a daily basis. And it, it, I mean, seeing the impact of the work that you're doing now and that you've continued to lead a life around economic justice, I think is something that we all need to be taking notice of. Yeah. And I really appreciate that, Chloe. You know, I am a mom of a 12 year old and she keeps me so humble. I always say, you really know, you could assess (laughs) someone's character because if you're a parent and arrogant, something's off. Something's off. Parenting is designed to ground you. It really is. Oh, it's so Um, humbling. So humbling. So humbling, right? And despite the heaviness of these times, quite frankly, I feel immense hope because I think this generation is they're demanding not only we see the world a different way, the world is different. And they are really bringing issues to bear that so many of us, I think about it like going into the store, walking in the store, my daughter wants to look at the ingredients to see, right? Was any harm done to the environment, to animals? Like they're really flagging and their their, their level of um, social consciousness is so clear and they have to be. You know, I remember my daughter was in third grade and she was telling talking to me about like, stop, drop and roll in case of school shootings. And how do you protect yourself? You know, just had a conversation with a very uh, dear friend. Her daughter is at Morgan State and just the deep resiliency and and armor that this generation has to wear because of because of the times they're in. And so I think they they they're really showing up in a way with such intentionality because they're paying attention to What's the earth that you are leaving for us? And what type of social issues and and social harms will we continue to perpetuate that is really going to come at the expense of our lives in a real-time way? This is no longer theoretical assumptions. This is their actual realities. And so I'm very inspired by their fierce rejection to uphold a status quo that is going to create collective harm. And that, to me, is refreshing. Mm. And so needed. So, so needed. So needed. Before we go further, I'm wondering if we can define a term that is integral to the work that AWBI does. And most of our listeners, because of the world that they're working in, 
are familiar with this term, but we like to not make the assumption. Yes. Everyone's understanding can always be refined, even if they are familiar. So can you talk to us about what the wealth gap is? What is the wealth gap? Yeah, that's a great question. And thank you for asking that, Matt. You know, the first thing I want to say is that while a lot of literature looks at it as the wealth gap, several researchers and especially particularly economists who really get to the intersection of racial justice and economic justice refer to this as a wealth divide because a gap is something that's naturally occurring. A divide is something that has been intentionally created. And we really have to constantly acknowledge root causes that have really perpetuated this divide, not only created it, but perpetuated it. When we think about the, the wealth divide, we see that, and I'm going to use the black and white data because, and that's another reason why I focus on black community wealth, because black median wealth is the lowest in this country. And so when we look at on average, white median households wealth, we're looking at on average national data, we're looking at one to eight. For every $8 a white family has in net worth, a black family has $1. When we disaggregate this data beyond the national level to state level, it is really troubling. And when we look at the metro areas, it becomes even more magnified. So for Atlanta, the white black wealth gap is one to 46. No. Wow. To 46. That mm. is alarming. It is, right? So the average wealth of white households in Atlanta is 288,000. Black households net worth, 5,000, one to 46. So Atlanta is, and Atlanta doesn't lead the country in the white wealth gap. It's actually more pronounced in other areas. Atlanta is, I think, number five nationally. The other thing I think it's important when we're talking about the divide is that wealth begets wealth. If you ask any economist, Wealth is the deep, the most significant driver of wealth. And this is why you're seeing this growing divide. Nationally, we're told it will take 228 years to address this divide because of its magnitude. The challenge is wealth isn't constant. It's not a constant variable. It's not a static variable. It grows. And so... We're at 228 years now. We'll see where we are five years from now because it continues to grow. And this demands that we think about what's a focused approach so that we can support people and places that have been systematically and chronically excluded from the economic mainstream. Historically, I think it's really important that we understand that slavery drove the economic growth of this country. Historically, I think it's important we understand that enslavers were compensated for their loss of capital, i.e. the enslaved Black bodies, when slavery was abolished. There was no reparations, no reconciliation for Black people 
who endured the brutalities of this system. It's important that we understand when we look at historical archives and bank ledgers that enslavers, when they needed more dollars, enslaved people were collateral. Mm -hmm. If there were defaults on these loans, then they were the properties of the lender. It's also important that we understand that enslaved people were also rented by cities and states, sometimes from enslavers, to create cities and states. Some of the most amazing architecture in this country was off of the backs of Black bodies. And then when we think about, someone will say like, well, okay, Janelle, that was slavery. But then when we think about retrenchment and Jim Crow, when we think about this system we know now of mass incarceration and understanding even during this period of retrenchment, vandalism was considered a crime. And so you would see Black people arrested in droves so that they could be captured through convict leasing. And so we see that free labor has been a constant in building the economic empire today we know as America. And when we're having conversations about wealth and the, the magnitude of this, the magnitude of this, we cannot unpack that the generations after generations of of wealth that was created at the cost of others and why we see this divide today and why it's so incredibly pronounced. And I, I bring the example of Atlanta because I think it's important that we thoughtfully disaggregate places where you will have a density of people with high net worth, there will be black people of high net worth, but that does not translate necessarily into thriving black communities. And so it's really important we have a conversation around, no, what's the sum of us? And how is some of us actually being able to benefit from the fruits of our labor, right? Um, and I think, even if someone is like, well, that's a really interesting historical analysis. It's also interesting to note that Georgia is still one of the leading states for people involved in the criminal legal system. I think national ratio, it's uh, Pew put out a study a couple of years ago, it's one to 26, while the ratio in Georgia is one to 13. And so when we think about, look at Georgia, look at Louisiana, the Southern states, and the concentrated overrepresentation of black people in, these, in, these, in this system, right? And when you think about what happens and some of the actual farm labor and other types of labor that still occurs today in this legal system, there is a lot of reckoning uh, and reconciliation that needs to be done. And this is not for benevolence. I want to be clear because the data is so unapologetic. It is so consistent to see that when people are excluded, we constrain the overall performance of our country. And I want to have this conversation at a macro level when we understand that as this country becomes, and I don't like the term majority minority, but as people of color 
continue to increase their representation here. It's not just only about passive demographic rep representation. I think there's a real conversation around and an opportunity around organizing, around purchasing power. And what are the pivots that need to happen as we think about the investments that occur amongst corporate sector that aligns with purchasing power? My 12-year-old, when she's making a decision about where she's going to spend her money, she wants to see her dollars go in socially conscious companies. That's where she wants to invest. And I support it. And it's right. And I think we need to think about the way we leverage leverage a collective purchasing power so we stop regurgitating the same abysmal statistics year after year. I love that. Yeah. And I feel like you're going into some of this, but I, I would love to hear. So when we think about the divide, when we think about purchasing power, can you talk a little bit about the different areas that AWBI is working in to build this collective? Yeah. Well, let me share more around at Atlanta Wealth Building, the work that we do, and, and we're inviting people for us to really create this shared movement because this is not, when we think about the intentional and deeply nuanced systemic systemic plays around this, this cannot be undone by one organization. I'm not going to pretend to say that. This really is a coordinated effort, right? And so for Atlanta Wealth Building Initiative, we're really here to focus on building Black community wealth. And our theory of change is really simple. We need to think about investing in ideas, people, and providing capital. And around our people piece, this work is fundamentally around movement building. Like if we're talking about really advancing economic justice, that requires movement. To your, to your point, Matt, it's actually right? And we have to lock arms with others to do this, right? And for us, the movement, it, it comes in many forms. Like we've had campaigns that we are going to continue to support. And we're going to release other new bodies of work to, to complement our campaigns. One of our campaigns is a thousand Black businesses. We know that it's really important to invest in Black businesses. Also have a very clear analysis on what that investment needs to look like and what we're seeing in the landscape. Because right now, I think we're like, okay, let's invest in black businesses. But there's also a really important strategy around what those investment patterns need to look like look like. When I look at the Southeast, for instance, I actually see that there is an over-indexing for small businesses of color in very very vulnerable industries. Those vulnerable industries, I, I would consider them vulnerable. And this was work done with federal reserve banks. But really, you look at Philadelphia Fed did this. Businesses where there was at least 40% of the workers were in physical proximity to each other or their clients, right? And, and so vulnerability was really considered, particularly in, in terms of COVID pandemic and what's happening. And so retail, accommodation and food services, um, waste management, they, we're over-indexed there, right? Am I saying don't invest in retail? I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is we need to also make sure we're making intentional investments for Black businesses in high-growth industries. We need to make sure we're making intentional investments in Black businesses that will be leading the curve for the future economy. And so we're having a conversation around where we are. And I think it's important that we think about where we need to be. And you see this in our investment patterns. And we commissioned research 
with other partners to look at investment flows for small businesses of color. And what we found, it wasn't striking, but the data justified it, the missing middle. Black businesses, 250 plus in revenue margins are significantly disinvested in, right? We put a lot of our dollars in startups and that's great, but we do not invest equitably around businesses that need to sustain and scale. And many of those businesses fall in the high growth industry. And so the 1000 Black Business Campaign is saying, how do we bolster existing businesses that are primed to scale? And even if you have a, and, and that, and you're, there are retail businesses that are, are really innovative and they're primed to scale, we want to support those businesses. And we're seeing the, the emphasis needs to be on sustaining and scaling. When I did my doctoral dissertation on Black entrepreneurship, which is what it was based on, I think it's important we, we also bifurcate. There are businesses that are income generating models, and then there are businesses that are wealth building vehicles. And we can't treat them indiscriminately. They actually require targeted investment TA approaches because the, 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 the end goal is different. So that's one, right? The other thing we're doing around the movement work is launching our Black Community Wealth Network, which we would love Higher Ground to be a part of, because we understand that wealth is actually a very dynamic it's it's a dynamic construct right and when we think about wealth and i've started to say this i have been woefully <laughs> underwhelmed by this definition of like assets minus liabilities i find it to be quite anemic because actually assets minus liabilities does not actually translate into power for me. And, I'll t and so we're looking at, and our Black Wealth Report, and we'll talk about that, it's really going to look at like, what are the intersecting variables that affect macro outcomes? And how do we talk about wealth in an intersectional way? Because it is. Because wealth, quite frankly, should give you the power to create your reality. That's what it really is. But if we continue to understand the functionings of systemic racism, dollars in my bank account can't shield me that, from that. It couldn't shield Serena Williams from what she experienced when she was giving birth, right? And so, so, so the Black Community Wealth Network is really looking at inviting practitioners, scholars, investors, organizers around the, the, the different domains of that. Ideas, which is another body of work we're focusing on, is our thought leadership. So we will be releasing November 1st, our report, Beloved Economy, Structural, and, and really addressing the, the structure, structural barriers around Black community wealth. And for us, those structural barriers, we're looking at it across four core domains, right? What does it look like? around the economic domains, and we're going to have our corresponding indicators, but we're also looking at health because that also matters. And we know dollars in your bank account does not protect your health and well-being. And we're seeing that. We're seeing Black women with PhDs having lower life expectancies with white women with a high school diploma. And it's actually attributed to the chronic macroaggressions and how that shows up for their mental health and other stress-related stress diseases, okay? We're looking at climate and ecological resilience. Because even as we're thinking about what is continuing to happen and this whole conversation around is climate change real, guess who are the people and places that are the brunt and the forefront silently suffering around 
the all the harm that we've done to environment. And then we're looking at civic infrastructure because I have to be able to protect my rights. And if I can't protect my rights, guess what? I can't protect my wealth. And we saw that in the constant decimation of Black Wall Streets over and over in our history books. And we're not interested in repeating that again, right? We need to have this civic infrastructure so that we can protect our assets. We could preserve not only our commercial corridors, but our culture, epi cultural epicenters. And so ideas are a really important part of us because we need new narrative to talk about our work. We need the thought leadership so that we're not only saying, let's cut and paste, define what the baseline is. And our manifesto begins to unpack that. I don't want my daughter to really, and I'll say this in a personal way, right? I don't want my daughter as she stands in her femininity and she and she and she believes she could change the world to 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 be subjected to a definition for someone who does not walk in her skin, look like her, understanding her nuances to say this is the baseline you need to reach it. We wouldn't want that for any of our children, and we should want that for 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 other communities, right? And so the, our thought leadership is actually really grounded in deep research. And we're challenging conventional wisdom to say, yeah, that's not the needle. And so we've actually started to migrate from the language of even racial wealth divide because the reality is the data looks very sobering to me. And because I understand wealth begets wealth, I'm not sure if that's the right baseline. More importantly, I don't want to encourage people to just reach the end goal at the cost of what it took to get there with. I don't want to encourage Black people to invest in privatizing of the criminal legal system. I don't want to do that, right? And the how matters. The how is just as important when we're talking about equity and justice. And so thought leadership and creating sound research, community-informed voices to really create our own goals is incredibly, incredibly important. And the last thing I'll say what we're doing is really around capital and really starting to experiment around what does catalytic capital look like? And what are things that we could bolster investments in? You know, we're not we're not a CDFI, we're not in that space, but we are a nonprofit. And we're like, if we can pool dollars and really we want to, when we think about catalytic capital, it's like we want to bake risk into our models. And if we're not baking risk into our models, we're not doing the right work, right? And what does that look like? And how does that translate into equitable development? How does that translate into a vibrant ecosystem that's coordinated and sustainable? And so when one is challenged, the work doesn't die. We actually lock our arms around this group and we support them. And so those are the things that we're really thinking about about that Atlanta Wellbuilding Initiative. Not only thinking, we're doing, and we know that the power of our work lies in deep solidarity with partners like Higher Ground. I love that. I love that. And we are here to partner with you. I mean, I had a hard time just listening to you and not saying, amen, yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I felt like you were taking us to church because this is so, so much of what you were saying is definitely aligned with our mission. And I just take it just a step further. Just the education piece is also really important to us because when we look at K through 12 and the education component and the access to quality education here, particularly if we're talking about Atlanta, needs to dramatically improve because our children aren't ready to go to some of these universities, whether they be HBCUs or PWIs, and then that sets you back as well. That's so. Right. 
our, right. our work is definitely aligned in almost all these areas. So we are looking forward to partnering and figuring out how we can accelerate some of y'all's work as well. Thank you. Thank you for your leadership. Absolutely. Thank you for your leadership. And another thing that I'm also really passionate about is is the data. So, and you are as well. So talk to us a little bit about how you're leveraging this data to come up with these strategies, but also to inform the communities and the and your partners. Yeah, one of the things, and, and our research team continues to grow. Shout out to uh Dr. Alex Kamadel, our vice president of policy and research. And one of the things that when we think about data, we think it's really important. My background in like community development, my doctorate is in international development. And I spend a lot of time understanding and really writing about the role of racism and research. And so I really engage in research in a very cautious way where we do no harm because there is so much evidence of how research has harmed our people. And so when we think about data, and even in this report that we will be releasing November 1st, the data for us is not only like, yes, we have like, we actually invest in, because it's so important, like we buy access to data, which is most nonprofits don't have the capacity to do, but we prioritize that, right? Because that's really important for us. But the second piece for us is like, we really live in this community-based participatory research methodological space. I am not going to say these are the challenges and these are the recommendations without talking to residents. And even this report we're doing, yes, we have all these administrative data sets, we have strategic partnerships, we've purchased access to data. So we'll, we'll run regressions and have those, we'll probably do descriptive stats on this. We will do descriptive stats on this, but we also did focus groups with residents and spend time like, this is how, this is what the data says. How does that resonate with you? Is that really your story? What is this data not saying? And they are actually our truth tellers. So I always say to the team, we marry data with truth. And it's so interesting when we created this uh, structural framework, residents are like, oh, you're missing this. What about that part? They amplified it in such a dynamic and real-time way, right? So I always say like, if you're doing any type of justice work, you have to adopt a mixed methods approach. You have to be grounded in community-based participatory research practices. That's one. The second thing we have to talk about data, particularly around, I'll go back to our entrepreneurship space, because that is, that's another soapbox for me. And I think, and let me just say this, particularly if you are a business serving organization, a nonprofit, the way the investments historically has gone, philanthropic investments, it's, okay, how many entrepreneurs you service? How many got a loan? How many got a grant? Got a grant? How many hours of technical assistance, right? But we don't have a corresponding investment strategy around data systems. And that is deeply problematic. The other challenge we have around data in the entrepreneurship space is that it is unacceptable. And this is a national, national issue. I worked on national advisory boards on this across multiple cities. I cannot go to one place in any particular city to say, I'd like to know how many Black businesses are in your city. I want to know their industries. I want to know their revenue projections, how many employees, what are their addresses? Where can I get that? It's five or six people. I'm routed to. 
And so the lack of coordination on coordination on the public systems. Yes. Yeah. And then of course, if it's not there at the public entity level, it's definitely not there at the business serving organization piece. So one thing we're working on um, next year is to begin the R&D for an integrated data management system amongst BSOs. We're calling it Black to Business because what's happening in a real-time way is that everyone is keeping like spreadsheets or they may use whatever CRM right but it's a very it it's it's a a project management system it's not an accountability system and more importantly we're missing the real data on what's the cost to do business and the touch points around that so there's no it's not integrated because Chloe someone might may talk to organization x but also go to y and z we know they're going to Y and Z because they need to, they're talking to multiple people to get access to capital and that data isn't shared. And so we don't have a story around our collective and coordinated investments and what those shared outcomes are. And so that's a real challenge. And so we're embarking next year on beta on the design of this black to business data system. So we could begin to do that at the business serving organization level organizing level. And one of the things I, I didn't talk about in our ideas work is like policy is a really important part of this. And really we're talking about um, data as a policy agenda item. Like we need to be able to, that that meets it, while it's a requirement, it's not coordinated and it needs easily accessible. It's also challenging as well when we think about the type of data that's available, because even if you go to public entities, you only get Black businesses that are certified. Well, that's right. specific industries. So it's a caveat. You're still, you don't have, you're still getting a slither. You're still getting a snapshot. So where- and, and that snapshot is usually the cream of the crop, right? Because <laughs> if they're getting certified, they're the ones that are already working with large, these larger corporations. That's right. already plugged in. That's right. You know, I'm having a real conversation and I'm happy to share when I formerly at a Federal Reserve Bank, Dr. Kelly Burton did mm -hmm. a study around uh, the supply diversity pipelines disrupt this. And she really exposed like the disinvestment in supply diversity and why there actually isn't an incentive to expand beyond this bottleneck. That's where you get these people. And I think that's what we have to really talk about around certification, right? When it helps and when it actually is a barrier. And how do we reduce the administrative burden so that we open the floodgates if that is the case? And the other challenge is if certification is required, I want to see MBEs disaggregated by race and ethnicity. Right, right. Right. I think that is incredibly important. So there is so much work to be done on that front around around data. Well, more more amens from us all around. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Our song. We're constantly having conversations about these topics specifically and, and how to change this fragmented. I don't even want to call it an ecosystem because it doesn't function as a functional no. ecosystem. It's just You're this right, fragmented landscape. That's right. That the intentions are there mostly, but yeah. the fragmentation prevents those intentions from being realized as real change, sustainable, consistent change. So 
you you well first of all i want to say to our listeners that we are going to have a link in the description for this episode to the beloved economies report it comes out november 1st but this episode will be up in perpetuity so if you're listening after november 1st 2023 which you you likely are that link will be there it will be live please go check out the report just seeing the preliminary report that was released by awbi it's it's chock full of information that needs to inform your work if you're working in this area specifically we want to talk about corporations and and you you've gestured towards the role that corporate america needs to play in, in building collective wealth in leveraging their resources you've mentioned supplier diversity now um let's really talk about that what role because we believe corporations absolutely must be leveraging their enormous resources precisely you know for the his, in part for the historic reasons that you mentioned towards the beginning of this conversation where does wealth come from okay well if your corporation is has access to and is generating wealth for some and has built that wealth on the backs of others how do we make sure that your purchasing power is being used to distribute that wealth to to fairly bring that wealth to the communities where you operate to the communities of people who are who are purchasing your products on the consumer side. So how do you see at AWBI the role of corporations and where can corporations, where can where supplier diversity professionals, procurement professionals, anyone who's listening to this podcast go to understand better how they can do their work more effectively and more holistically? Yep, yep. Let me just say, I think one we are in call-out culture. And I think about not just my 12-year-olds, there's an army of 12-year-olds where people are really being intentional around following the money, right? And I think that is something, and, and my conversation around the role of corporate sector is not a plea. It's, this is good business. This is good business. I, I just, and I think that's a very different frame People are paying attention and they're they're paying attention not just to your passive representation around, okay, who's your chief diversity officer? People are paying attention to where your money is going, right? And so that's incredibly important. When I think about, and I'll just use Atlanta as an example, because it is the economic gateway of the American South. Atlanta has roughly 42 Fortune 500 and 1,000 companies in the region. But yet the city consistently has been top three for economic in income inequality, economic immobility for 30 years. That's unconscionable. It's unconscionable that there is such a concentration of deep, powerful economic anchors in our region. And yet 77% of Black children in the city of Atlanta live in neighborhoods of concentrated poverty. That's not good business. It's not good business and it's not sustainable. And so the conversation around corporations is yes, supply diversity. Let's have this conversation around supply diversity. And this is why I think there's also a policy piece around how do you leverage that in a way where I wanna make sure I invest in this business and I wanna spend my money here because this is, this is this is how I know they give back to my community. I think we have to go under the hood around our supply diversity metrics um, and look at spend rates because you also see that in these pipelines, 
Black businesses are uh, are skewed to specific industries where, which quite frankly, spend rates are just substantially less. And so this work around, well, it's hard, we can't find them. No, they're there, you can't find them. Corporations need to incentivize JVs more, particularly for black businesses. It is, it is, it's a tool that has really been adopted more. We see by white owned businesses. You see it for some um white woman-owned businesses. It has not actually been incentivized for black businesses and small businesses of color. And I want to see that happen in a much more in a significant way. It needs to be more systematic as they roll it out, for sure. Yes. Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta did its first inaugural economic supply diversity economic impact report. And I think, again, like this is not a plea. This is good business. And so when you assess your economic impact and how that dovetails into not just like your ESG strategies, but again, as you bolster your market and you try to expand your market, those are things that people pay attention to. The other piece that I want to revisit, Chloe, what you said around education, and and I want to tie it to workforce, there's like the supply diversity piece, but we also have to talk about the workforce piece for these Fortune 500 and Fortune 1000 companies in particular, because Quite frankly, we have a history of importing versus developing talent. And that's why the K through 12, particularly when we look at middle and high school education, doesn't see the level of investment that's needed because there's been this concentrated focus on importing versus developing talent. And that, quite frankly, Chloe and Matt, that's a policy agenda, right? We have to go under the hood about what makes states good states to do business and how does that translate into economic benefits for the people in those places that they're doing business. And those are some pieces I would really want to, will continue to promote. I think that there are companies that are really interested and they're trying to figure it out. But again, like, having one person trying to coordinate your supply diversity pipeline, what will that one person do? They go to the usual suspects and they get people who are certified, they're ready to go, lock and loaded, but that's not going to expand the pipeline. And that's why we still continue to see these types of outcomes. I think we're looking at like 2% and and Dr. Burton's report delves into it. But when we look at like the pass-through rates of people who are, who have certified and like who are able to access these pipelines as a function of the larger, the larger group of yeah. black businesses and small businesses of colors, it's anemic, it's single digits, like a 2% rate. And we cannot say, you know, if you're saying, yes, I have a commitment to supply diversity and you have a team of one, no, you're just doing some PR. You don't have a commitment to supply diversity. Tell it like it is. Tell it like it is. Yes. You're absolutely right. You are absolutely right. And it's hard for people to call that out to corporations because if you have one person and you're a multinational organization, what are you really doing? I mean, I hate to say that, but it's so true. I'm glad you said it. Now I feel like I can say it just publicly. Yes, yes. Yeah. Gosh, so much amazing work that AWBI is doing. And 
I am looking forward to wrapping around you guys. I'm looking forward to, I think our entire team is looking forward to figuring out other ways that we can support you guys, not only in Atlanta, but in the Southeast and at a national level and then at a global level as well. We need to take small steps, but we need to be thoughtful about how we go about the execution. Yeah. Chloe, can I just say, I really appreciate you naming that because and we're actually going to go through our rebranding strategy next year because we've gotten requests. We're getting more requests outside of Atlanta around the research and the policy and the Black Community Wealth Network is actually going to be national. Yes. So we know that there is a really important play for us to look at, like certainly the American South, because you cannot address national data and continue to neglect the places that have continued continue to show up with these stubborn racialized economic inequity. And I'm a daughter of the global South, proud Trinidadian, born and raised. Georgia is my home now, but this is a global issue when we're talking about what is really happening around countries, communities that have been extracted from. And so we see our work truly scaling. And so we're really eager to continue to lock arms with partners around this movement and this urgency. And we just have to, Chloe, because I just want to name like the conversation we just had involved risk. And that risk becomes much more palatable when it's done in solidarity, because we can arms around it. Our power is in our collective. And I just, and I think that is like, that is, that is such an important antidote for us to lock arms on because it's like, okay, well, Janelle said it, but then I appreciate and I want to name you came back and you said it too. So you're like, and I'm locking arms with her on that. I just want to name that and not gloss over that the leadership moment demands risk for us to really show up authentically and the way that we could enter these arenas is in solidarity with each other. So thank you for saying that, Chloe. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Janelle. This has been incredibly insightful and incredibly inspiring as well. Be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed this episode, Make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and check out our previous shows. Stay tuned for next time. Thank you for listening to Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground. We are grateful for the time you spend with us and participating in these conversations. Please review and rate and share our show as we are focused on growing awareness in the supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity space. If you'd like more information, please visit us at higherground.io. That's H-I-R-E ground.io. Thank you for being here and we look forward to seeing you next week.